Hey everyone, welcome to Punkcast. My name is William Maxwell. I'm a student of Web3 and the owner of Punk9527. CryptoPunks are 10,000 uniquely generated characters stored permanently on the Ethereum blockchain. No punk is the same. This is a show dedicated to celebrating the punks behind the punk. My hope for this podcast is that we capture the essence of the punk culture, elevate the brand and the individual behind the punk. One last thing, projects discussed on the show is not financial advice. Crypto and NFTs are a volatile and risky asset class. Please always do your own research. Other than that, let's go. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Punkcast. Today we've got Punk2764 with three addies. He's got wild hair, normal beard, and the classic pirate eye patch. In real life though, he's an entrepreneur and builder, being an early founding team member of the famous POAP product we all know well and use. Now he's currently leading as CTO for Mocha, the Museum of Crypto Art, and Amber Island, a Web3 community for whiskey collectors. Please welcome Pirate Punk to the show. Renil, how are you? Hey Maxwell, nice nice that I can be here and that you have me on your podcast. I'm I'm doing very well, but now like breaking out from work for a bit and uh, talk with you and reflect on all the different things that I have been doing in the past. So I think it is going to be a cool convo. No, that's awesome. Mate, I, I love the avatar that you have going on. I think for most listeners, they won't be able to see this, but what I might do is just take a screenshot and we can post it on the tweet when it goes live. But basically for those that are listening, renil has got a sort of a animation of his avatar that's moving live time and he's giving me the peace sign right now, which is kind of cool. <laughs> is, it, is this linked to one of your projects, by the way, just out of curiosity? I've been collecting avatars, like VRM avatars for a couple of years now. And like I had like a lot of time spent in VR chat, even since before I joined the NFT space. And avatars as like a reflection of personality or like your digital identity has always been something that interested me. And uh, PFPs, of course, is just like the baby step or the first step with like a plain JPEG, most of them. And then like the step to go volumetric and be compatible with like all the different metaverse worlds that will pop up over the next years. That's the reason why I have, uh, yeah, I paid an artist to create this custom avatar based on my punk. And like my punk has black hair, but I colored it blonde because I'm blonde in real life. So it matches my real identity a bit, diff- <laughs> a bit more. And um, minted that on Pixel Chain back in the day and gave them the picture and told me, I told them, yeah, can you please mint this as like a crypto avatar, uh, a custom thing for me so I can be myself on all the different um, metaverse places that I'm yeah, hanging out. And they did it. And uh, it's cool. They have multiple ones. No, it is, it is super cool. I'll, I'll, yeah, I'll have to share that with everybody uh, when I get the chance. But Renil, um, why don't we start with then with I guess your handle, Renil? Is that your real name or is that a, a pseudonymous name that you've come up with? Uh, my my real name is Rene, so R E N E, and the word or the name Renil has been uh, was born, I would say, two thousand two, two thousand three, around that time when we played Half Life Online. Uh, like Half-Life Deathmatch, just basic stuff, and then later Counter-Strike. Uh, I remember that one version of Half-Life had like a bug that in the frag counter, so when you frag someone, it cut out the last two letters. So there was not written Rene fragged someone, or Rene was fragged. It just said RE fragged someone. And then I added I and L to form Renial, so that at least the frag counter showed my real name. But with the nickname that resulted from that, I like explored the internet and internet culture ever since. And that's now almost like 20 years ago. Yeah. So the handle is 20 years old and I am 33. (laughs) Still a baby. (laughs) Still a baby. Uh, Nice. Well, um, well, lovely to have you on the show, man. And uh, looking forward to unpacking your 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 punk story and also your personal journey. It sounds like you've done a lot of interesting things already, especially uh, in the Web3 space. So why don't you kick us off by um, sharing a little bit about your background and you know how you found your way into the wonderful world of Web3? So 
after I did like school and stuff, while I was already like online and heavily gaming online games, like all entirely through school, I started like to study. And at some point I just broke up and um, decided to start a software development company with one of my friends, Alex, from like I know him since kindergarten. And um, that was like over 10 years ago. So we've been starting to build software and e-commerce and also process optimization and backend technology stacks for companies. Headed into virtual reality in 2014, 2015 with uh, like the Oculus development kits when they were coming out. Started to build software on that front and explored all sorts of VR applications while doing that. And in 2017, I found out about NFTs via Decentraland. That was the angle where I was coming from. Like I coming from VR, Decentraland was the angle that then brought me into NFTs and the concept of NFTs to me. And I instantly understood the whole idea and also like uh, could instantly link it to like game assets and game items and scars drops and all these kind of things made in instantly sent to me. And um, that was then the reason that I told my co-founder, like, we need to dig deeper into this and we need to, like, position our company in, in that field. And we need Solidity engineers or we need to teach Solidity or learn and teach. Our company needs to learn it, basically. And so we started to build in early 2018 stuff for Decentraland. So we, we wanted to build prototypes and become developers for, yeah, for applications that would fill these empty worlds. That is how I got into NFTs and also into Ethereum. So the whole Ethereum concept, you know, the, the entire protocol stack. And of course, I had to like learn all of that, but I didn't do much else over the five years since then then um, traveling to Ethereum conferences, to NFT conferences, attend and build and yeah, get involved into the Ethereum community as, as far and deep as I could. Man, uh, that's, there's a lot to sort of unpack there and sounds like a really colorful journey. So, so why don't we go a little bit further back then? You know, were you always, growing up, were you always like a technical kind of person? Like was coding natural for you? Yeah, like I was building my first websites in like fifth or sixth grade, seventh grade, like these were like the early days where I was learning HTML and CSS. I think it was that. And then my co-founder, he was like more like the backend guy. He was always writing backend software and I was like more the frontend guy. So we could, when it comes to like build stuff together, we had like a very good alignment and like a symbiosis to build applications because he 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 was like doing all the back end, I was doing the front end. And like after school, I did apprenticeships. Like in Germany, you have like these two and a half years where you can work in companies and learn a job. So you have like a certificate for a certain job. And I did like business stuff before I went to university. So I also had that. I was like building on the internet, internet culture, and like also consuming the internet all the time, building a bit. And then also getting like a sense for business and how to start companies and things like that. So this was all before I started to study, which was just you know, a few weeks and then I didn't go there anymore. So what did you study at uni? I started to study electrical engineering. I was thinking like, okay, software is cool. Maybe I dig a bit into like the hardware kind of things, but like it was so deep with physics and like these things that you had to learn with like electrical current, all these kind of stuff that I thought like, if I really want to start learning this, I'm losing too much potential on like the software side. So instead we started the company. And I think if I would have continued the university thing, I wouldn't have the time or like the energy or curiosity left to <laughs> dig deep into NFTs while like being curious as a builder also, you know? Because it would have just like occupied too much mind space and I would have been taking in a completely different direction. So I'm super happy that I dropped out. <laughs> was that an easy decision for you or uh, an easy conversation with your parents back then? 
For me personally, it was like an easy decision, but I faked towards my parents for a couple of more months that I would go to university while I was actually not doing that, just coding and <laughs> starting with first projects. <laughs> uh, that's, uh, that's super cool, man. It must have been um, a super courageous step for you to step out and do that. I mean, people keep talking about do what you love and follow your dreams and heart and stuff like that, but not a lot of people actually do that, man. So, um, so kudos to you. And of all things, like, what was it about, you know, software engineering and tech that drew you to it the most or interested your curiosity the most? Was it because you were, you know, you know, growing up as a gamer? Like, what was it about that sort of space? I think something that is really cooler that I found fascinating is that you can write, that you write code in a certain way and then something appears that you could, like, create something out of nothing. And, of course, also... While doing these things, you understand more and more how applications that you use work. And um, it also gives you the perspective to build bigger things or bolder things at certain points uh, while you continue to do these things, build stuff. I think, yeah, but, but most importantly, this like create something out of nothing just with your knowledge or expertise the fact that you know how certain things are being created and then you just write that or type that and it spawns. That was something that fascinated me in coding. That's super cool. Uh, man, I've always wanted to do it. I, I think I took up a course trying to code, but then I think I gave up after like a week or two. <laughs> it's pretty hard going. But, um, and so what were some of the earlier products that you were experimenting with and building? So let's start, let, let's start in Web3 because otherwise that's too much. Mm, like in Web3, it was a game called Chainbreakers. It was early 2018. We wanted to apply the concept of NFTs to 3D game items. So we had like 3D GLB models. We tokenized them and sold them in a crowd sale end of 2018. Mm, and this game should have become one of the launch titles for Decentraland. But back in the days, like they also had like a hard time doing like through the bear market and kind of and these kind of things. They had to like rewrite their engine two times to get the performance inside the browser that they needed. And we had to rewrite our entire code bases multiple times due to that. So after I think one and a half or two years, we were like out of funds. We raised I think 100k in the crowd sale back then. And we tried to survive with the team of five working on that. And like, we just like shoved more money in to like keep it alive until at some point it was just not sustainable anymore. But um, we definitely aim to clean up that code and make these chain breakers items available as like, yeah, interoperable items that can be used by avatars like the one that I'm yeah, wearing right now. So you can imagine people can then pick like a sword like in the back of their avatar or like wear it in their hand. So we are very connected to these projects and builders who are creating these ecosystems and create like avatar configurators. And I really want to make these NFTs available at some point via like clean APIs and clean integrations um, so that people who own those NFTs can use them despite the fact that we never finalized the game, you know, but it's still, these are still artifacts that I'd like to see because many don't know that, but it's like also, it was like very bold at that time to even build an, an, an NFT project. I think we were like maybe 20 or 30 projects at that time. Everybody knew each other. Like we went to like a conference in Hong Kong called Nifty where then the OpenSea crew was there, like everybody. And there was no real venture capital investment back then. Just like dreamers with ideas who were building crazy stuff. And I think like we are going to like uh, manifest our like impact into like the history books by making these, these items like available nevertheless. And I think a couple of people checked it. These are actually like the first GLB models that are tokenized on Ethereum where you really have like the path to the asset on chain and not just behind APIs. So 2018 was super early. Yeah. 
with the ERC721s out then, or is this a... Yeah, it was already out. We had like 721s and stored like the GLB files in additional like attribute fields, I think. Yeah, but there was no standard how you store 3D stuff on chain back then. Cool. So I see the collection on OpenSea called Chain Breakers, 3,600 items. Yes. There's a ba- Battle Axe, Baby Wolf, Battle Hammer. Yeah. Oh, they're cool. We had like these weapons and at some point we also airdropped pets to everybody who purchased weapons. So we said if you purchase that amount of weapons, like back in the day, we made the crowd sell in mana. So if you spend that amount of mana, you will get that pet. And if you spend that, you get that pet and another one and another one and so on. Um, to incentivize the people to spend more money because we needed the funds. So there are also there are some, several collections, but I think we only sold the, the weapons and um, the rest was like airdrop stuff. So even scarcer than the weapons. Man, that, what a what a crazy time. And that was super early and um, such, a, such a shame too. I mean, like, I, I mean, how do you, I mean, going through that process with Decentraland where as I understand that you were building on their platform and as they were sort of upgrading their platform, you also had to change your code to keep up as well. I mean, how do you sort of look at that now from a interoperability point of view? And I guess there's a few more metaverses that are starting to pop out now, right? Like how do you sort of feel about putting all your eggs in the one basket now? Like, mm, It definitely made me a bit more careful when it comes to like planning and laying out architecture. I mean, back in the days, it was like our first NFT project, our first Web3 project. And now, like what we are, for example, doing with Mocha now, just to like give you a sense and answer this question, we've positioned ourselves way more modular. So the entire tech stack of Mocha can live without an integrator or is like integration agnostic in a sense. So with Mocha, we have like 3D architecture where people can put NFTs on the wall and decorate that. And then you can store an art exhibition on chain. So you have like a building, you put the art on the walls and then press save. And then what our APIs serve is like a building with art on the wall. And that can be spawned into Decentraland or into something else. You know, why don't we talk about the Mocha a little bit? Because I think it's an interesting project. Can you describe, you know, what it actually is? Yeah, Mocha is a museum. Um, the Museum of Crypto Art is the name. Um, it was founded in 2020 by Colborn Bell. And um, one year later, uh, I joined them, or my company joined them, me being CTO and my company and my dev crew being like the technical implementators or implementers of the strategy that we together like form. They already had like a huge pool of artists, a great reputation, first uh, representations of the museum inside virtual worlds like Somnium Space and Decentraland, also in Mona. Like there are various places where they already were, but we were thinking about ways how to scale it and how to decentralize it. So in 2021, when we joined them, we launched a token called Mocha on Polygon and made it super accessible so that people can buy it. Back in the days, gas was like crazily high, I think 500 to 1,000 way. And um, that was why we were already like moving to like different scalability solutions than Ethereum, but still being able to bridge to Ethereum and stuff like that. So that was the foundation, how the situation was when I entered it. So we want to decentralize the stake of the museum into like the token holders' hands, decentralize the governance and the voice of which artists should be in the museum via like a blockchain. And um, yeah, by doing that, we've developed three different products over the two past two years that I've been leading the development of. And last week, we actually like married the token with our product ecosystem for the first time. What do you mean by that? So this system, what I've explained before, like our flagship product, Mocha Rooms is the name, where you have like one-of-one architecture, like different modular rooms that you can envision as like architecture minted by any architect that wants to mint a room. And 
these have like different capacities. For example, you can imagine like one modular room has like 32 slots where you can ha uh, display 32 NFTs. And currently there are, I think, 40 of these rooms. And we have a nouns fork that emits one new room maximum per day. So you can, do you know how the museum organically grows? And um, now that we have this rooms ecosystem live, um, we started to think, okay, how do we arrange, arrange the rooms? Because all rooms together make up the museum. And you have like in the first governance layer, you have dictators, so to speak, who own the room. They buy a room and they can, they can decide what's on the wall. It could also be a DAO who decides it together or a collective who manages the room together. So that's also possible. But in the end, like there are several room owners. And then we had the question, how do we decide which room is in the beginning of the museum and which room is at the end? So what is the path when somebody wants to experience the entire museum, which room is where? And last week, we pushed like a big update that we integrated the Mocha, take, Mocha token, like all the staking farms, like an aggregation of everything you hold in the museum and you engage. All these KPIs aggregated into a points balance, which we call Mocha points. And then you can delegate your Mocha points towards the rooms that you like most. So the rooms that the most people like, or the most people delegate their Mocha to tokens to, those rooms will be at the entrance of the museum. So now we have like a, a list of rooms, a ranking basically, a leaderboard with the best curators or the curators that deserve the highest visibility according to the broader Mocha community. So currently you have like, let's say 30, 40 people who own rooms and we have like 3000 token holders. So with these two layers of governance system, we can scale the entire vision that Colborn already had when he was founding the museum in 2020 way better and like very, very decentralized fashion. Because the curation and the room, that is completely on-chain. The holdings of the token and stake and stuff is also on-chain. And now also like this delegation percentages are also on-chain. That I, for example, when I have 100,000 voting power, I say 20% goes to that curator or that room, 10 to that one, 5 to that one. And then I split like the rest of my power in like 2% chunks to these rooms because I like them all. And then I press save. And by, by doing that, now everybody can do that. I think we have the most decentralized museum on the planet with Mocha. And um, I think that's the perfect foundation where can, we can now like, you know, move into the future and make the entire vision reality. Now, now it's about onboarding and make the entire ecosystem easier, accessible to, to all the people who want to like participate. Oh, wow, man. I'm just having a look at it now. It's uh, pretty cool. So having a look at the rooms, how you've got the nouns uh, system where it looks like you're able to auction off a room per day, is it? Exactly, yeah. I'll have to put the, the link in the show notes as well for people to have a look around. And, and, then, and then so help me try and understand, because um, I'm having a look through some of the art gallery too. So the, the, the Mocha token, when you say decentralized, does that also give you partial ownership of I guess, the, um, the assets that are sitting at Mocha? Mocha is a non-profit foundation. So we are not allowed to, or we don't plan to sell anything that the museum owns. So like, this wouldn't make sense. Like, this would be more make sense for like a fund or a gallery model. But as Mocha, it's like this non-profit foundation where we lock everything that the museum owns like forever by design. And there cannot happen like speculation on that side. Uh, it wouldn't make sense. Like we really focus like the token on the governance power, the decision. Like we have like snapshot voting live now, uh, where people can guide or na navigate, help us to navigate this nonprofit into the future. And also like since last week, can really decide what should be visible and. Um, what shouldn't be visible, like really make a direct impact on how the museum looks and how it changes to look on day-to-day -day basis. 
so no, I'm, I'm, it's pretty amazing, dude. I mean, uh, and it makes a lot of sense too. I mean, like I'm just going through and I'm in awe of the collection in here. I mean, you, there's some pretty big names like Beeple, Matt Kane. I mean, you, you've even got like a hoodie punk I've just noticed in here. So this is like, you know, a real museum in its truest sense, right? It's art for the people. Um, and especially if they can't sell, this would be a really interesting sort of play. And what about new acquisitions? Like, how does that get funded and who decides what gets to go in? For the initial version of the Genesis collection, so when we started to come together and uh, revamp the museum in 2021, we had a couple of collectors who decided to donate their like, NFTs from their private collection. Corborn did like the biggest chunk. Um, we then talked to nonfungible.com to estimate the value of these NFTs and we paid out a Mocha token in like somewhat that amount. That, that's how you can envision it. And then, yeah, we also like take donations into the museum and um, we are going to like re-enable these system on broader scale that people can bring something into the museum and get Mo Mocha token at some point as well. One thing that happened, which really sucked last year, we lost like our entire team share in Mocha token. So 15% of the token supply was stolen from, it was like a service, a DeFi service that we used to invest tokens over four years to our like core team, including myself. And yeah, a hacker, like so it was called Superfluid, the service. They hacked Superfluid and drained 15% of the supply, immediately dumped 10%. And the price of the token fell from $3 to $0.08. Cents. And then the price pumped back to $1 over the next day. And we tried to get the hacker to either dump the rest of the token so that we could tell the community, like, okay, there's no danger now anymore. You can buy without like the X above your head. And then the next day, I think the hacker dumped the rest and the price dropped again to $0.08. Cents. You know, and then uh, before we could prove the whole thing with the nouns fork and rooms, it was around that time when we launched that for the, the first part of it, where we started to get ETH revenue and started to buy back Mocha token. This happened and it completely like vaporized what we have like been building in a sense, but we, we never stopped building. We just like continued to double down. And even, even if you lose, like there was US dollar value back in the day, $5 million was just stolen from you. You wake up. Everything was gone. <laughs> and then we decided not to fork the token because it would like cause crazy confusion. And we think it's like a great opportunity for everybody to to buy in anyways. Um, now it's I think 18 cents or something. Obviously, like no financial advice in any way. Like it's it's been super low for a year now, but below like private sale prices, 10x below. And um that way we think we can get in. A lot of people interested in art. It's on Polygon, you know, cheap gas fees. Let's see if it helps us to get more traction now that uh, the governance system is live since last week. I mean, what, what a super cool project. Um, and sorry to hear about that hack, man. That's really unfortunate. Uh, yeah, that would have been pretty, pretty painful. Just uh, can you share a little bit more about the founder? What was his name and his sort of background? Name is Colborn, Colborn Bell. You find him on Twitter. C-O and then a one instead of the L, the number one, and then born. Like he has like a finance background. He worked at Wall Street at some point, I think. And uh, then went into Bitcoin, very deep into Bitcoin for various reasons. Uh, I think that the financial system, how it is structured, he, he had like pretty good insights into how all of this ties together at the position when you, when you work in, in the finance sector that deep. And he decided to go into Bitcoin years ago. And then at some point he found about NFTs and he always had like an art uh, interest in, in the arts and, and stuff like that. Yeah, from there he started to found, found the museum to highlight all the artists to have like a very open approach. Back in the day, his co-founder who left as we went in was Pablo Frail. They founded Mocha together. Yeah, I think like Corbon himself, like he as an individual is also the largest collector on Super Rare. So which also like speaks yeah, about 
where he spends and what he accumulates in the NFT space. And he's, I think, one of the biggest supporters of crypto art in the world, actually. So working with him is great. I can imagine. No, it sounds uh, such a purist background and I love the project and the origins of it too. I'm just having a look at the wiki of the Mocha website and he's got, yeah, Colborn Bell, but it looks like he's got a funk zombie. Yeah, he also has a funk. Two years ago, he gifted me my same punk that I have as a funk. <laughs> I was like, oh, that's a nice gift. But yeah, you know. Yeah, nice. I'm I'm not somebody who went either very deep in punks nor into funks. I think back in the day, it was like a counter movement of a counter movement. That is how <laughs> I saw it. But, you, you know, it's about the people in a community and the punk community still has like the earliest risk takers in it. So I always align more with like the punk kind of thing. Uh, Corbon actually like owned the hoodie punk, which is now in the museum. He donated that one into Mocha. And I think, yeah, back in the day when we met, he was flexing the hoodie punk. Yeah. I remember that. That was a super clean punk you've got, uh, or he had in the, uh, in the museum there. I think also pirate. Oh, <laughs> uh, was it? Yeah, maybe, yeah, maybe it was. Just had a quick look. What, that's a that's a super cool story, man. And, and so, what's next for Mocha? Like, you know, what does good look like in the next sort of three to five years? Like, where do you want to see this go? So, now that we have like APIs ready, where integrators can pull the museum or can pull individual rooms of the museum and just spawn it somewhere. Like we have, like with Hyperfile, we have an integration live where every Hyperfile builder who owns a Hyperfile world can with a few clicks spawn any art exhibition from Mocha into their world as they want. So we want to give like these accessible tools already, as you said, like open tools to everyone who want to like sprinkle in some art into their creations, make that very easy and accessible across all these virtual worlds, including Decentraland, Insomnium, and like whoever wants to work with us and want to like help us to maybe also financially and fun brand side of things wants to have our builders attention to do their stuff first we are happy to to work with people that we trust and are already working on the next integrations on the vr front but i also want to see augmented reality integrations or more like projection mapping integrations, stuff like that maybe in the traditional art museums so maybe not this year or next year, but as NFTs are kind of, will, will cycle back into a positive light after this bear market, I hope that more museums are open to yeah, use the tools that we give them and say, yeah, you don't really have to do much. We have like decent these tools ready that you can use to spawn one of these mocha rooms into your museum in real life with like a, a projector or something or an AR headset, and then the visitors of that real museum can get like exposure into Web3 or crypto art without the real museum have to like invest tons of money. You know, we want to make it easier for the mainstream to access the curations that our community is now curating. And yeah, I think that these are like very important goals. That's uh, super cool. Well, mate, all the best with it and looking forward to... Uh... What, what sort of comes out of Mocha next. Hopefully um, I can get a handle on these rooms one day. Well, mate, going, going back to your personal NFT story then, um, what was your first NFT? Do you remember what that was? Actually, like my first purchase was Decentraland land in the Genesis auction back in the day. And I remember like these were not really NFTs that you instantly had. Those were like airdropped after a few months once like all the contracts were ready. They they did the pre-sale as a separate step. So I didn't have the NFT as the first NFT in my wallet. I think the first NFTs that I had were either a crypto kitty or an Ethermon. Ethermon. Oh man. It was like a early Pokemon clone that came out at the same time as Axie. You're uh, super, super early, man. Um, be, <laughs> be, being part of the Decentraland presale and, and CryptoKitties. What were you paying for presale price for Decentraland back in the day? Yeah, I think you had to purchase Mana. I, I'm not sure if that was already traded. I think that was already traded on the centralized exchanges because there was no Uniswap back then. 
Uniswap was invented in late 2018, I think released one year later. So late 2017, we had to purchase Mana on Binance and then you could like purchase a plot of land for, I think it was around 100 to $150. Oh man, nice. I mean, that, there was a crazy sort of mega pump towards the back end of so 2021 when Facebook came out and announced that they're moving to the metaverse. And I just remember anything that had metaverse in it, you know, it was Decentraland, Sandbox, there was all these other ones that were popping up. There was another one called Blocktopia. I don't know if you heard of that one. That uh, I think their token went like a thousand X. You know, they, they, all of these projects are sort of coming and going. Some of them are sort of staying and, you know, lost a fair bit of attention. Like, how do you sort of, what's your sentiment on, I guess, metaverse now into the future? I think we have seen that the amount of funding that a company has doesn't really tell you anything about the level of execution and also the amount of stuff that is going to be shipped and being to, to be like released also to be like fully accessible and usable by the community and beyond. Like we've seen these companies, not just Decentraland, they, they raised lots of money, but also like other players who made like enormous amounts of funding into their, into their structures. But still, like also timing-wise, maybe, of course, everything is still, we are early, especially metaverse-wise, technology-wise. You know, four years later, you have the other side as like a big project that is heavily funded from the Board Ape Yacht Club. But then they, you have like projects, for example, like Hyperfile, where you only have two people, two people building a system that just works, scales organically, people can use it right from the beginning almost, and there are new features every week. And imagine, you know, what, what happens when you have like the right people with like a hustling mindset, with a hustle mindset and true builders who believe and wake up and they just like ship and build also with like the right plans in their head, with the right learnings behind their back, because, you know, you cannot, of course, you cannot compare a company that started last year to build with someone who, who come like started four years ago. Uh, you have like different bag of knowledge and learnings. But this showed me that you should never judge a project according to like how much venture capital has been, has been poured into it. It's about like the community. It's about the core team and the dedication of, of a few people who are leading the charge and then the ability of those people to like, yeah, form the community behind their back and like, somehow uh, get the traction of like this aggregated energy and skill sets of the entire community to the street. And I think we are going to see smaller projects or projects that scale more organically, also using like DAO structures to be more successful in the future. Because like you don't have like these like venture capital people who uh, start to tell founders what they should do according to their personal knowledge or thought process because it's very hard you know to bleeding edge stuff and not being the person like as like the founder as the person who like thinks about these things since two years or something and then you start to execute that you just listen to venture capital people who have who copy a, a motive or a copy a strategy that worked a year before from a completely different angle into the metaverse space, for example, and expect it to work while like stepping over the competences and the, the vision of the founders who might like, you know, steer the project into a completely different direction into like a blue ocean strategy, which nobody really knows, does it work? You have the uncertainty, but you also have like the high risk and the high reward side of things if you try new, th new stuff. and. Um, that's why I always try to stand behind smaller teams and support them and pour funds into that, those projects instead of like buying massive amount of NFTs from like big projects that already have enough funding. I don't believe that that's something I should do because I'm a builder myself and I know how important it is to be supported. Yeah, gotcha. But if you were going to make a bet on, you know, some of the metaverse plays that are out there in Web3 at the moment, 
what would you which one would you so be backing right now do you think if you had asked me that question half a year ago i would shout weberverse into your face but there were like a couple of things happening over the past months which led to a certain like or to like uncertainty in a bit i still believe into the whole vision of like merging ai with like the web based stack and i know that they have like good a good sense for technology and how to modularly put something together that can make super fun experience but i i would never like shill it at this point i still like stand behind the the team because i don't want them to fail but the answer would be more clear half a year ago but also like hyperfire as i already mentioned uh, they are like amazing builders I, i love them like we've been supporting them with mocha and bought like 50 plots or something or 50 worlds back in the days where we exhibit art artists uh, using our rooms and built like monthly or I think even bi-weekly exhibition spaces that then like have like event formats around them. It's just like drag and drop. You drag in 3D models. You can load NFTs directly from your inventory with a few clicks. It's no code, no design skills necessary. Something super accessible that I would have hoped back in the days Decentraland would become. But yeah, Mona versus also one. Mona is great. On Cyber also. Like they also integrated um, interoperable avatars, which I think is super important. Like if you have like a metaverse world that doesn't allow you to be yourself inside of it or to carry your identity into it using like an interoperable avatar, that's already like a problem in my eyes. I, I really like to log into places where I can use my own 3D avatars and everybody just recognize me instantly. And everybody knows that, you know, that the term interoperability is again, a factor that's highly important for the success of virtual worlds. Yeah, absolutely. And I can't imagine it'd be a, a, an easy solution to these things, right? Um, I could sort of see those challenges. And I think that's probably why I'm a little bit reluctant to jump in heavy into any of these at the moment. It's, it's a big problem to sort of solve, but hopefully we'll get there. But uh, definitely, I'll, I'll definitely take a closer look at Weberverse and Hyperfy uh, at some stage as well. So thanks for that. Man, it, it, we're sort of digressing from the NFT discussion because this has been super fascinating and an education journey on the metaverse for me, right? Because uh, it's not every day I get to talk to uh, builders, uh, especially in the metaverse sort of space. I can maybe like explain you, like, I think it's a good point to explain you Amber Island. Yeah, sure. Because it's also like a meta, meta, great metaverse angle. Like all the experience that we have under our belt is also poured into that project. So the company approached us a while ago. So we launched it last year, but we worked on it a couple of months. So before we launched, they asked us if we want to build like a NFT project that has a physical component into it. And um, I asked them like, what's, what's the deal? Like, and they said like, yeah, we have great relationship to distilleries. We have like shops in airports in various cities so people could like in the future at some point pick up their stuff. And I was like, okay, what's the product? And they were like, yeah, whiskey, whiskey distilleries, ultra rare whiskey bottles reflected by NFTs. And there was like another project called Blockbar back in the days. um, And they had a similar thing, but more like e-commerce, more like an online shop with NFTs than like a community-driven, storytelling-driven project. And I always liked that. So they wanted to do a storytelling-based approach. And they created the brand called Ember Island, where you have like this island, a Scottish Highlands island. I don't know exactly what's the inspiration, but like a punk, a clone, like all these different community people like on a boat driving to that island. And then it's about like seeking rare whiskey treasuries and uh, the the communities like dragged into this in various ways, and I said, okay, let's do it, and let's make sure that we make the assets as interoperable three D objects. So every whiskey bottle should be a sculpture instead of like a, just a JPEG. And um, we did the first drop earlier this year after like building everything and starting with marketing and all that stuff and storytelling. We did the first whiskey drop in January or February. It was like 30 bottles of Glentarrot, most scarcest whiskey that they released since 1700 something. And um, the artist who did the label is Mark Constantine Indusil, like uh, an artist that I've collected myself, psychedelic, visionary artist, 
amazing label and then we modeled the 3D bottles and we released it and it was like sold out instantly. And it is crazy that with that concept, like we now get the bottles into storage and those are stored like at the secure location and you can trade like the NFT across borders, which is like a huge problem with alcohol. You cannot just ship alcohol all across the planet into across borders because each nation has like different rules. You know, taxes and different like yeah, KYC, like what's your age? Because you cannot give alcohol to people under like 18 in certain countries, 21 in other countries. It's just super complex compared to trading like authenticated like ownership thing, which is like the NFT traded like on secondary markets on OpenSea and just only if you want to really redeem the, the NFT, like reflect the NFT as redeemed, the 3D model gets like a different look. Like the bottle is basically, you, you, you see it's opened and uh, the, the redeemer receives the physical bottle in real life and can then like, you know, open and drink the whiskey or even like resell it in like a forum. There will be like, there, there are certain interesting things that I think we are going to see there because like you have like completely different markets for whiskey. Also Facebook groups where they trade those things. Are you a whiskey connoisseur? Like you drink a lot of whiskey yourself? Uh, yeah, but I think I started to collect whiskey when I was 20, but I never went like, I never fully aped in, but I like always like every few months I got like a new bottle and I think I have like, 20 bottles or something like I like smoky whiskey the ones that uh, burn your eyes yeah or like Lagavulin 16 like that's my favorite one so far the super peaty ones yeah nice how much are these Glen turrets worth like a bottle if you were to buy it on the street like they only exist on the platform so neither like the liquid inside the bottle nor the bottle exists outside of the platform I think it was sold for 2.8k and one bottle was resold for three point something, but there was not much volume. So we don't do any influencer marketing or artificial pump stuff with that project. It's like slowly organically growing. But the, the one thing that I as a punk older could do was also as a, somebody who's super involved in the project to like offer the IP of my punk for like a free claim for all the members. So we have like another bottle, just done with Fable. It's a blend, blending brand who had offered an eight-year-old liquor. And we created a custom design with their in-house designer uh, because they're also super storytelling focused. And there are like 999 punk whiskey bottles, which is, as far as we know, the first whiskey bottle issued by a punk holder or together with a punk holder. Bought Apes did that last year or two years ago with Lockbar. I think it must be last year because two years ago they barely existed. But yeah, they did it last year with Lockbar, but not, not as a free claim. So I wanted to follow the legacy of punks and make that bo bottle a free claim. Oh man, I, I'm, I'm, I'm having a look at it now. The bottle looks amazing seeing your punk there in the, uh, in the distance on the rocks. <laughs> yeah, like the, these, 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 you can clearly see if you... Google other Fable bottles, you, you instantly recognize the artist. But the punk bottle like also features like the Ember Island, the punk on the Ember Island. You can see how the artist tied everything together. Yeah, nice. Well, uh, it, it's a free mint for, uh, for punks, is it? You need to become a member of like Ember Island. You need to get like one of the 999 Genesis membership keys, so to speak. And with those keys, you can also participate in auctions, get other benefits and perks. You can basically buy on the first market of Ember Island as we release new bottles. They're currently talking to different distilleries and form the roadmap of the next drops. But we wanted to do something that is an incentive to spend those 0.15 ETH for the membership. So that as you spend that, you instantly have like a good feeling about it as you receive like the first punk whiskey bottle for free. And you can redeem that, I think, in summer and get the actual bottle to your, to your home. Got it. So you got to buy the membership, which is 0.15, and then you can mint the punk piece. Okay, sweet. I'll, I'll definitely pick up one of these. Uh, they're cool. 
yeah, and I'll, I'll link it to the show notes as well. I think at the time of recording, I think we've got about 800 odd bottles left of the punk piece, so uh, which is kind of cool. Well, since we're talking about punks, let's talk about your punk in a bit more detail. How did you find out about punks? I think I found out about it fairly early because like when you when you are into NFTs and you start to build own projects, you obviously research what's out there. But back then, when I was also super busy into like building chain breakers, I didn't really have the mind space to dig the entire philosophy. Otherwise, I would have definitely purchased more back then. For me, in the beginning, it was, oh, cute. It's like pixel-related image. Like, we are doing 3D weapons. Like, why should I care about this? You know? Like, I felt that we were already, like, in the next stage. But then at some point, I was like, dude, fuck it. Like, I want to have one of these punks. And wh which one should I know? Should I get? So I, I was looking for, like, blonde wild hair because I have blonde wild hair in real life. And it didn't exist. Only, like, the female versions. Then I thought, okay, then I need to get like a, a black wild hair. I can dye it later, which is what I did. But I already thought that in the beginning. And then I picked it up, I think, in 2019 for 80 or $90. Yeah, so half an ETH, which is $98 on 13th of May, 2019. And uh, did you know that it was actually a Hember claim punk? Oh. So um, Hember's the guy that claimed dozen punks. Nice. I should definitely, I will definitely watch to that episode. Yeah. He's got a really crazy story as well. So, um, had him on punk cast. So you should have a listen to that, but, um, no, that's super cool. And uh, no, he's super clean as well. So why, why the eye patch though? Were you looking at many different other punks at the time or how did you sort of come up with 2764? I think I'm kind of like a pirate at heart. I like <laughs> like freedom. I like to like not to bend around anything people tell you. And be like open-minded and a bit like counterculture, all these things. And I think an eye patch underlines that quite well. So when I saw the wild hair was the eye patch, I I knew that this is the punk that I would like purchase. No, he's a uh, he's definitely a beautiful one uh, for sure. I think Snacks has got a penchant for uh, pirate punks as well. <laughs> and um, mate, if if money wasn't an issue for you, then um, you know what what punk would you be? would you be looking at? Mm, I think I would buy a wild hair zombie. Yeah. They're pretty cool. I really like the punk, uh, you know, the punk of the, that, that is owned by Ross, the crypto Ross. That one is pretty cool. Yeah. He's got a cool one. And, uh, Snowfro's got a wild hair one as well, right? Yeah. Snowfro is the right as well. Yeah. I really like that one. Mate. And, um, if you were to describe punk culture in a few words, like, how would you describe that for you? Definitely like this being an early risk taker, being an early believer into something new that is at its core crypto punks for me. Also like the co community. I've been to like punk meetup during NFT Paris this year and met a lot of different punks. Some of them, I already knew them online. Uh, some of them I already knew in real life, but it was cool to be around them and uh, to hang out and you have lots of builders there lots of people who really care about like the origins and the values back in the day when nfts were not about money that is i think that's what what makes it also different from what at yacht club for example because it's just not possible for them like despite them saying they are early it was just like an accelerated pump in like a micro scale of time where everybody became like super rich and then that attracts a different different people I, I think and the punk community was growing more organically over like a longer amount of time which is i think a reason why i feel more comfortable around those people yeah i feel the same way and i think the way that you've described your journey into crypto metaverse going through the whole issue with decentraland valuing decentralization and the things that you're sort of working on really signal you know a lot of what punks are about you know that counterculture independence and decentralization as well which is kind of cool and if you had to look across the punk community do you have like a favorite punk that comes to mind i think 
if I have to say one name, I would say Julie, because like I met her last year for the first time in real life in Vienna, and then in Linz when they did like the Crypto Vienna exhibition, and like their tribe over there. It's not just her, but also Ross and like other peeps from Vienna. They are doing so much for the punks community. They are moderators on Discord and they are bringing people together. They are so involved in the daily discussion, especially Julie, that yeah, I think it's, it is just important to name her. Uh, she's doing a lot. Uh, she is. Uh, she bleeds for, for punks. Um, <laughs> yeah, she is a punk. She really is a punk. She is a punk. No, she, she is. She's super lovely and uh, she, she adds a really nice dynamic to, to the community for sure. And I, I want to ask you a few other side questions about punks as well. But what are your views on V1 punks? To be honest, as a developer, I don't understand why you would stripe that from the history of your project or from, from something that you've created, even if it's by accident or like the reasons are not fully on plan or according to plan that that those things exist personally would even i don't hold any v1 punk but i would personally stick more to the origins of this and also would have for example included them in an airdrop for me like i don't don't see a reason why you would like exclude that from your history yeah it's uh it's such a fascinating story and part of the history and lore of of cryptopunks right so and it's you know different punks have different sort of views on it too but i think i'm probably aligned with you you know they probably shouldn't have been as discouraged or shunned as much as they should have but just on that note as well if you are looking for your v1 punk you might might want to hit hember up uh, since he's the claimer of your punk so you might be able to get your v1 pair unless you sold it of course and how did you feel about the yuga acquisition of punks back in the day as somebody who's also like in punk culture, super independent and stuff, in the beginning it was like, hmm, like what do I do with that? On the other hand, Yuga, I think Lava Labs are like tinkerers, builders, people who are into research and they like to do bleeding edge new stuff and tinker around. I don't know them in person, but that is how I feel from the outside that that they are people like that. They are. I'm. I'm super similar like to them i like to like do things early and like pioneer stuff but when it comes to like scaling a global ip or a global brand i think that yuga labs has the chance to potentially do that better with the prominent status that they have acquired with board apes i hope it like sticks because as everybody knows things that go up very fast can go down very fast and I hope that they will just like sustain and build through whatever comes into their way or crosses their path and that they are real, like they are not long in the space. So I cannot really say yet if they have the cap capabilities to live through very, very bad scenarios and really, really sucks ass things that I don't know what happens when board apes go down below one ETH, you know, like terrible scenarios which nobody wants, but they are just not long enough in the space that I could like have an opinion about their team. But yeah, I, I think we cannot change it anyways. And let's see, like punks are, despite the ownership of Yuga, I think more independent from the actions of Yuga than Bored Ape. Because a lot of people who bought into punks didn't care about the owner in any way, which is different with Bored Ape investors so we will see what happens and i wish them only the best of course no i think many punks share the same sentiments as you although when you said uh, what must go up very fast also must come down very fast um must have been from the meme <laughs> meme season that we've been seeing yeah. in the last couple of weeks yeah, these charts <laughs> illustrated even better is, uh, like the, the candlestick charts yeah make it more visual <laughs> So um, one last question before we go. Um, if you could pass a message on to the next owner of your uh, beautiful pirate punk 2764, what would you like to say to him? I think definitely I would ask if they are real pirates. And if not, they should become more piratey. 
<laughs> become old piratey. Uh, what a message. <laughs> Renell, this has been a super fun chat, man, and really love listening to your uh, personal and uh, your projects and your punk story. Well, thank you so much for your time. Any final closing comments on your side and you know, what's the best way for people to find you? You can find me on, on Twitter. My handle is Renile. 13C7, R E I L 13C7. Or my website is renial.eth.limo. The easiest way to connect. I'm on Discord, I'm renial and then hashtag 1337. You can also hit me up there, but I think uh, Twitter is best if you want to hit me up and ask questions uh, or ta- tag me in the punk, the internal punk Discord. Thanks so much again, Renil. All the best for uh, Mocha and uh, Amber. Definitely um, we'll share that with uh, the punk community uh, as we sort of broadcast this out, but put some links in the show notes as well for everybody to uh, look up. Guys that are listening, thank you so much again for tuning in for another week of Punkcast. Yeah, we'll be back next week with another awesome punk. Bye for now.